Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. So hey, tonight is, gonna, is a little bit different and it might be a little bit longer than normal, but I think it's an important subject that I want to talk to you guys about. Tonight, I want to talk about money. Money. Yeah. You, guys, you guys are ready for this. Uh, m- money, it, it's one of my favorite subjects to think on and, and to talk about. We, we did an entire series, actually, a year and a half ago, kind of laying somewhat of a foundation on money and on material um, called Abundant Valley. How many of you are here for Abundant Valley? Just by like a show of hands. It's like, this is the original church. There you are. Um, <laughs> so um, if you haven't listened to Abundant Valley, go back onto our podcast, listen to it. Um, it was a really fun series all about beauty and excellence and enjoyment. And I'm, we're going to touch on a little bit of this, but we did a much deeper dive then. Um, but I think that money is super important for us to talk about as Christians because money reveals the heart. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what, oh, there he, okay, there he is, finally, jeez. Jesus was taking a while there, guys. Uh, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure, that's where your heart is. But, But what I find is that in the church, we sort of have two simplistic poles when we talk about money. Here's the two poles. There's the, the, the poverty gospel and the prosperity gospel. On one side, the belief is sort of like this. Money is bad. Real spiritual wealth, not physical wealth, is what is moral and good. On the other side, you have the prosperity gospel, which essentially says this. Money is good. It's really good. In fact, wealth shows that you've done something right. That's why you have all that wealth. Wealth shows that God has blessed you in some way. And so you must be a really righteous person. Both of these two opposite poles suggest that it is possible to determine someone's righteousness based upon their bank accounts. But this is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, wealth doesn't reveal your righteousness, it reveals your heart. And to be honest, you know, I think about these two poles, and I don't think that most Christians live in one of these two poles. I I think that most of us sort of live like this. Yeah, I know Jesus wasn't super down with money. I don't think I worship it, though, and I can't honestly really imagine that I would be the one that he asked to sell everything and give to the poor and follow him. Yeah, probably not me, but somebody else. I really like money. I know exactly what I would do if I had more of it, but I'm not gauche enough to actually let people know verbally how much I love money. I just let the things that I buy reflect that. But don't get me wrong, I, I, I give a lot of ways, a lot away sometimes when at least my debt isn't overwhelming me emotionally. That's how I think most Christians think about money. And this tension 
this conflict reveals that we are not at peace with money. What if there was a correct way to view and handle money? And what if the Bible really did deal with our deepest desires and our deepest fears when it comes to finances? How would we get there? Well, to talk about money, we first have to talk about what money represents. So we're gonna do a little bit of Bible here. Put your thinking caps on and and flip in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter one. That's where we're going to begin. Begin at the beginning, Genesis chapter one. If you are new to the Bible, it's the very first, in the very first few pages of your Bible, if you have your phone, you can just Google that. Genesis chapter one. And here's what Genesis chapter one says, verse one. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pause. Creation, whose idea was it? Not a trick question. (laughs) Creation, whose idea was it? God's, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a volition, there's a will. Who is it? It's God's will to create the heavens and the earth. Now, what happens next is this whole litany of him giving order and purpose to the different pieces of material that he has created. So look down your Bibles, verse four. God saw that the light was good. He's just made light and he separated the light from darkness. In other words, he's giving it purpose. Light, you do this. Darkness, you do this. Okay, and what does he say? He says, it's good. Skip down to your Bibles to verse 10. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters, and the gathered waters he called sea, seas, and God saw that it was good. So he's giving purpose, he's giving function to the material, and he's saying it's good. Verse 12, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was what? Good. Verse 21, so God created the great creatures of the sea. Ugh. Do you ever, do you ever, ever been swimming in, a, in like a deep lake or like, you're just like, what is, un- what is under me? I, I hate that feeling. Ugh. Why'd he do that? God created the great creatures of the sea. It's Jim's like, so that I can go catch them. Uh, <laughs> he created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing uh, with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. One more, flip over the page. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God makes material, good or bad? Good. God makes humans, good or bad? Okay. You guys are passing with flying colors right now. God then delegates his authority over material to humans. Look down, verse 26. What does it say? It says this. Uh, let's see here, I was on the other page, here we go. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So he makes all this material, says the material's good, he makes humans, says they're good, and then he says, and my authority over the things that I've made, I'm giving it to humans so that they can rule over it. 
Material is good. Humans are good. Humans ruling over material, that's very good. Now, what is a human's job when it comes to the world around them? Well, it is to, we don't have too much time to get into this. I've taught on this before, but it's to take the raw material that God has made and to make something of it. To take metal and stone, wood and oil, and to produce something of value, to produce culture. And what humans produce, they get to have ownership over. Private property, contrary to some people's belief today, is a Bible idea. How do I know? In the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is do not steal. Without private property, there's no such thing as stealing. It was God's idea that humans would produce things that they could then have ownership and thus responsibility over. Now, what is the purpose of material? Because if you just stop there, it would appear that material exists for efficiency and industry. God makes a bunch of materials so that humans can rule over it, they can build culture. Now, but, but that's quite a Western way of thinking about material, isn't it? <laughs> look, look at this verse up on the screen. This is from Genesis chapter two. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, this passage, you maybe have read this before. You're like, oh, that's cool. I like trees. Um, And it seems innocent enough, but there's a catch here. Early Jewish scholars were perplexed by this because in Hebrew, the order of words denotes importance. So word order matters. So here, pleasing to the eye comes before good for food. What is that? It's beauty precedes industry. What does this mean? It means this. Next slide. Creation isn't simply intended to be leveraged for industrial gain, but it exists to be enjoyed. Creation exists to be enjoyed, pleasing to the eye and good for food. This is such a huge value for us as a church, wonder, enjoyment, beauty. God created material for these purposes. I mean, even just think about food in general. Why are there so many different flavors? Why are there so many different types? Why are there so many different textures? You know, if God was just, if God was just trying to keep humans alive, he could have given us protein blocks. He could have given us little blocks that he said, every day you get three blocks, one for each meal. And that's how you survive. And it, it, won't take you so, it won't take you all that time to create, you know, a nice meal. You'll be able to get home from work. You just pop a block in, you're good. And, and, and it just, it's, it's so efficient. Maybe beauty, taste matters to God. <laughs> the point is this. Material is good. God doesn't view it through the lens of industry alone. Material also exists to be enjoyed. Okay, now maybe you're thinking, okay, that's material, but I thought we were talking about money. What does this have to do with money? Well, this is a little bit of a deep dive, but what is money? What is money? Money isn't material, but it represents a human's interaction with material. You're like, Money represents something deeper than power. It represents value. Value. Next slide. 
Money came to represent value when people wanted to trade, but the person who they wanted to trade with didn't value what they had to trade. <laughs> You're like, what? Okay, here, I'm going to explain this. Imagine this. Let's say that I'm a mechanic. I see you, Mike. Let's say that I'm a mechanic. I really know my way. I'm a, I'm a real grease monkey. I know my way around a car. And let's say that you're a roofer. And I need my house roofed. It's been leaking. It's getting really bad. And so I need you to come roof my house. But here's the problem. You don't need your car fixed. Your car's running great. Well, we have a predicament. What can I trade to you so that you will roof my house if all I have to offer is my mechanic skills. If there was a way to quantify and to signify value that everyone recognizes, then I can trade you my value that I've built up through fixing cars to give to you so that I can get my house roofed, right? You guys following? A nod, yes. Yes, we're learning. This is where money comes into play. What if there were these pieces of paper that everyone received for producing something of value with their labor? That's money. In this case, the roof is my, having my roof re-roofed is more valuable to me than the money I have in my pocket. And the money that I have is more valuable to you than the time and effort and energy it's going to take to roof my house. Now we have a modern day trade. That's how our economy works. Now, there are really two different ways that money is produced for people, two ways that value is provided to other people. And the first is this. It's producing a material that people want, like a roof or like an iPhone or like a pair of shoes or a car. And this is that Genesis 2, working with raw material to produce something that people want or to produce something that people didn't even know they wanted, but now that they see it, they have to have it. That's called the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, two, before 2006, we were all good. 2007 hits, the iPhones invented, everybody's like, I didn't know I needed that, but I really need that, <laughs> right? So you how do you produce money? How do you produce this value with material? Well, you make something with material of value for somebody else, or you risk your value. That's the second way that money is produced. Now, this one's actually interesting. I really like this one. Uh, people provide value to others by risking their assets, by lending to other people with interest. This is another way that you can produce money. Now, maybe you're thinking, how is that producing something that people want? Sounds complicated. Well, let's say this. Let's say that you saved up $100,000. You've really done well. You've saved up $100,000. Those dollars represent your labor, your Genesis 2 interaction with material, producing value through your time, through your skill, through your effort, through your degree, through it all. You put all yourself for years into saving up this chunk of change, $100,000. Now, you could go and you could spend that $100,000 and trade it for material that you really want, like a boat, anyone? Uh, nobody, uh, just me, uh, like a boat, like a car, you could buy a house, you could do all kinds of things with that $100,000. Or you can put it in the stock market. Now, if you put it in the stock, <laughs> we had quite a week, didn't we? If you put it in the stock market, GameStop, anybody? <laughs> Some people are here, okay, I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, you put it in the stock market, you could make money on that money. Now, here's the catch, though. 
you don't get to spend it on anything else. You don't get to enjoy that nice boat this summer. You don't get to drive that nice car. You don't get the house. You put it into the stock market. And there's a chance that your money's going to grow. Why? Because when you put your money into the stock market, I don't know if you know this, here's what happens. You're enabling somebody else to borrow your money and to use it to create value through their interaction with material. They need your, they didn't have the time to save up $100,000. They need your $100,000 so that they can go do the thing with material that people actually value and want. The way that your $100,000 makes money is that you need to be paid for, one, not using your money to purchase material, and instead, investing it, you're foregoing an enjoyment of it. And two, for taking a risk. Because it's risky putting your money into the stock market. Because maybe whoever the stock market lends your $100,000 to doesn't actually make a product that people value, and then you may not see your money back. That's how it works. Here's the point. Money is all about value. Value created by doing what God designed you to do here on earth, producing a good or enabling other people to produce goods. Money's not inherently bad. The Bible does not say that money is inherently bad. It's actually connected to the good creation God made. It's actually connected to the Genesis 2 mandate to build something with the material that we have in front of us. So where do we go wrong with it? Where do we go wrong with money? Because you all know the story of somebody pursuing wealth and it totally ruining their lives, or inheriting wealth, and it totally blowing up their lives. You know the story of, I think there's like statistics, I don't know them, so I won't try, try to even attempt, but you know the story of people who have won the lottery and it just destroying their personal lives. Where do we go wrong with it? Idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is this, and, and t if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, still write it down. Idolatry is simply worshiping the creation instead of the creator. That's what idolatry is. It's worshiping the material. It's worshiping the value you can get from material instead of worshiping the one who made the material. It's disordered love. The loves of your heart are disordered and you've placed a priority on something that is not big enough or weighty enough to handle the weight of your life. Paul warned about this Pretty heavily, this is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's what he's saying. When you make money the pursuit of your life, you will find that you have self-inflicted wounds throughout your whole life. Relationships that were broken because money was the priority, not relationship. Children that strayed from the truth because you taught them money was the most important thing in life. The inner turmoil of never having enough, always feeling like you need just a little bit more. Why? Because money has the ability to deceive you. Jesus says this referring to the seed of the kingdom, to the gospel being shared. He says this in Matthew 13. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, hears the gospel, the word of the kingdom, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. The deceitfulness of wealth. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I think that money deceives us in primarily two ways. 
status or safety? Every single one of us, and you could probably even do a little like self-assessment right now, every single one of us views money in one of these two ways. Either you want money for status. I'm not going to be like my parents were. I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be better. They'll see when I have that car. <laughs> or we view it as safety. Well, you just never know what's going to happen. And I think if I just had that, then I would actually feel safe. But in both cases, we are presented with the dilemma of wealth promising to do too much and deceiving us telling us that it can actually give us status and it can actually give us the safety that we long for as mortals. It goes something like this. If you just owned a home, then you would be secure. If you weren't a renter, then you would really be safe. You really have a foundation to build your life on. Or if you just owned a home or if you just had that home, then you would really be someone. If you just lived in that neighborhood, then you would really have that status that you desire. Or it looks like this. If you just drove that car, then your family would be safe. You know, I'm tired of this clunker. If I just had that car, then I think we'd really be safe. We could go to Bend all the time now. We could drive over the mountain pass. We'd have four-wheel drive. It'd be incredible. That's the safe car that we need. That's the conversation that happens in my home a lot. Um, or if I had that car, then everybody who I went to high school with, then they'd really see. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I know that's in the room. <laughs> or maybe it's this. If you just had that degree, then you would be sure that you'd get the life you want. Or if you just had that degree, then you would be sure that you wouldn't end up like your parents. And guys, this temptation is ancient. It's so ancient. What was the cause of the first sin? It was a serpent claiming that material could provide status and safety that it couldn't. And here's why money is so singled out by the New Testament authors. Money can trick you into thinking that it can do the very things for you that God wants to do for you. See, God wants to give you identity and status. Through the gospel, he wants to make you more than a conqueror. He wants, wants to make you impenetrable to the woes and the worries of this world. He wants to make you secure by trusting his vision for your life, not what you can cook up with your effort and ingenuity. So let me ask you this question, because this is a very important question, and I want you to really think about it. Think about a number. How much money is too much money for somebody to have? What's that number? Those billionaires. <laughs> what's, that, what's that number? How much money is too much money? Whatever amount replaces trust. How much money is too much money? Whatever amount replaces your trust in him. We know that to be true. I know it to be true. And yet many of us are clamoring after the very thing that would replace our trust in God. Slowly undoing our relationship with him as we give ourselves to money. Having our royalty that we were originally intended from the very beginning stolen as we become ruled by the material world instead of ruling over it. 
there's this idea. You're gonna like this one, Jake. <laughs> there's this idea that my friends and I, it's this phrase that always make us chuckle. And it's when, when somebody um, doesn't have a lot of wealth, but they look like they do, we say they got a big hat, but no cattle. <laughs> you got a big hat. I don't think you have any cattle. <laughs> oh, it's so good. You might have that hat, cowboy, but you have nothing to back it up with. <laughs> it is a good word. Uh, I, I was just thinking about, <laughs> I was just thinking as, as I was writing this this week, I was thinking, nothing makes you look less royal than the pursuit of status. Nothing makes you look less Genesis 1 verse 26 than a big hat with no cattle. It's maybe even the opposite of Genesis 1 26. <laughs> Nothing makes you look more fearful than the pursuit of safety. But when you make Jesus Lord of all that you own, nothing makes you look more royal. Why? Because his lordship then gets to transfer through you. You begin to live with the resources of heaven through faith. You begin to no longer worry because you know who your father is and what he has at his fingertips. And so while everybody's clamoring after status, big hat, no cattle, while everybody's clamoring after safety, you actually have a status. I'm a son or a daughter that can walk within the halls of heaven. And I actually know who my shepherd is. It's not me. You begin to rule over the material world entrusted to you in partnership with God rather than the material world ruling over you with just the voices of what's on your feed and what's happening in the stock market and should I buy, should I sell? Should... How do we get there? How do we get to that level of financial freedom? Well, I think that Jesus has some insight for us. See, our money needs discipleship. Our money needs discipleship. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter six, all the way to the right in your Bibles. We went from the first book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament to Matthew chapter six. Jesus has so much to say about money. He really does. He, I, I was going through, I was gonna tonight try to go through all the passages in the Bible that talk about money and just get a real good picture. And I was like, we just can't do that. It would take so long. Um, so I just picked one of the teachings of Jesus, but there's many. Uh, but this is one of my favorites and, and always speaks to me. So yeah, Matthew 6, uh, verse 25 is where we're going to begin. And uh, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, some of Jesus, a collection of Jesus' most important teachings. Here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Are you worried about safety? <laughs> Do not worry about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Are you worried about status? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers in the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, 
which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Safety and status. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you see it? <laughs> Do not worry about safety or status. Your job is kingdom. And everything else will be added by your father. When you put the kingdom first, when you put the presence of God first, when you put a lifestyle of heaven on earth first, pursuing those things that glorify the king, everything else is added as well. And when it's added, what do you do? Well, remember the parable of the talents? Some of you know the parable of the talents. A man gives his servants sums of money, and when he comes back, he says, what did you do with the sums of money to increase them? And some of, someone's like, I doubled it. And someone's like, I got 25% return. And, so, and one of them's like, I knew you were very scary, and so I just buried it in the ground. And he's like, you're a wicked servant. We are not supposed to bury or ignore what we've been given financially or in material or in gifting, talent, intellect, privilege. We are supposed to increase it. The point is this, though. It's on the narrow road that disciples find the ability to handle God's rewards. It's in that seeking first the kingdom that actually teaches you how to handle the reward when it's poured out. You're like, I don't know if I believe you. Okay. When Jesus was sending out his 72 disciples, uh, here's the, he's, he did it twice, actually. And here's the two times. The first time he said this, do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. They're like, what are we supposed to take? Barefoot, ouch. Uh, and do not greet anyone on the road. Okay, that sounds kind of stinky. Uh, but then, the next time he sends them out, here's what happens. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. Okay, do I need both? And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Why is there a discrepancy? Does, I thought Jesus sent his disciples out the same way every time. Why is there a difference in how he sends his disciples out? <laughs> Could it be that he is trying to take his disciples on a journey where we learn to keep primary the pursuit of the kingdom, and by doing that, we learn to steward material correctly. Could it be that there are some people, you look around and you're like, I can't believe they have that. Well, maybe they can handle that because of their discipleship to Jesus, and you just simply can't imagine handling that. <laughs> I love the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan. What does he say? I only tell you your story. And yet so much of the way that we think about finances and money has to do with us assuming or trying to figure out what somebody else's story is. See, here's the resolve that I want us to have as a family. Here's, here, here it is. Next slide. I won't use my power outside of obedience. 
I won't use my money outside of obedience. I will not serve money and try to be God. I will serve God and I will rule over money. I will make the kingdom the most primary thing in my life and, I will, and by doing that, I'm linking myself in obedience to you so that I know that when the, when the reward comes, when the blessing comes, when the promotion comes, when the degree comes, when the house comes, I can handle what you have given me because we have seen, guys, haven't we? Blessings crush people. We have seen financial windfalls crush people and God loves us too much to not lead us in a discipleship journey to where we actually learn that Genesis 1 verse 26 ruling over material rather than being ruled by it. The metaphor that I like to use when I think about this truth is that of a general and soldiers. Generals and soldiers. Think about it like this. I'm the general, a military general. My dollars that I have, the money that I have, represents my soldiers. I then have the privilege and the great responsibility to send my soldiers to accomplish great feats for the kingdom of God. It is my responsibility to say, money, you're gonna go do this and bless this person. Money, you're gonna go do this and invest here. Money, you're gonna be here so that we can enjoy it. Because from what we've learned so far, what should we do with money? What should we do with material? We should increase it, remember the talents, we should enjoy it. Remember, that's what God originally intended in the beginning, and we should give it. We should be generous because Christ has been so generous with us. What do you do with money? For some of you young people, I want to see phones out, baby. What do you do with money? You increase it. You invest it. I'm not seeing phones out. Oh, these guys, they don't like me. Okay. Um, ooh, ooh, oh. um, you increase it. You give it and you enjoy it. That's what you're supposed to do with money. That's what biblical people do with their finances. And I am financially free to do so, so long as I'm the submitted general. So long as I'm the general who's fully submitted in a discipleship relationship with the Lord, I am then free to enjoy, to give, and to invest what has been given to me. But here's the crux, right? You're like, that sounds pretty good. Here's the crux. What keeps us from financial freedom? Because that doesn't look like most of our lives. What keeps us from financial freedom? Well, obviously idolatry, we've talked about that, but normally our idolatry has a manifestation. And the manifestation of our idolatry of money tends to be spending, hoarding, and, and trying to build up treasures on earth, not trusting God to do what he said he would do. And so for most Americans, their need for status and safety outside of God results in debt. We're gonna go there. It results in debt. And here's the problem that I sense with it. You're like, what's the big deal? People have debt, they pay it off, who cares? Here's the problem. There are Christians, maybe even some people in this room, who you have lived a significant portion of your life and today you are wondering what happened? What happened to the dreams that I once dreamed with God? What happened to the surrender that I once lived with? What happened to the risky generosity that you once birthed in me? Well, I think it's possible that we got entangled in the civilian pursuit of money and became a slave to debt. Our idolatry went unchecked and it manifested in our need for more, which manifested in debt. And then what happens when you're in debt? You are no longer the general. Somebody else is the general telling your dollars where to go. 
and you don't get a say. So this is why we're doing Financial Peace University. <laughs> this is why we're doing it. Because I've been there. I've been the general who was actually had another general in my life telling me where my soldiers were going to go. Um, I grew up in a uh, very privileged environment. Um, so much so that I never growing up really thought much about money. I kind of thought, every, doesn't everybody kind of have money? I know, I grew up in privilege. I was so ignorant that I just sort of believed that everybody got a home someday. <laughs> I, I believed, hey, everybody just gets nice cars. I mean, all the people I know have nice cars. Everybody takes nice vacations. If you had asked me, even as a high schooler, why some people are poor, I'm not sure that I would have had a real answer. I'd have been like, it's probably the man or something. Um, all of that changed when I graduated college because I went to college during the 2008 financial crisis. Because remember that? Some of you remember that? I remember it happened. I was at, I was at George Fox. It happens, and I'm like, am I ever going to get a job? All these people, you know, it's doom and gloom, and I had no frame of reference for, you know, the ups and downs of a market. And I thought, wow, this is really bad. I'm probably never going to have a job. <laughs> Oh, jeez. I ended up getting a job, praise be to God, after college. But then I began to realize just how many people don't live with wealth. It's like, wow, it actually is pretty rare. I, I moved into neighborhoods that were different than the neighborhoods that I grew up in. And I began to, to my eyes opened. I, I moved to Portland. I began to see, well, not everybody has wealth. In fact, a lot of people, maybe even most people don't. And I began to see that even though people didn't have wealth, they pursued the image of wealth, and it actually kept them away from wealth. And for a time, I fell into that way of living as well. It was kind of the YOLO. Remember YOLO? Sheesh, <laughs> I'm like dating myself here. Remember YOLO is like, you only live once, man. And so I was like, I am only going to live once. I'm going to eat out every night. <laughs> and uh, I am only going to live once. Debt, who cares? That's for another day. Um, <laughs> All of this kind of way of living and mentality came to a head when we tried to buy our first home. We're living in Portland, it's 2013, and I remember just thinking, or sorry, it was 2014, and the market was so hot. You ever like listen to like real estate types? It's so hot. We've never seen anything like this. The supply and demand is so wacky. It's like, you know, okay. Um, it's like so hot. And I remember like I had this thought, like if we don't buy a home now, we'll never own a home. Like we have to get in right now. Otherwise we'll get priced out forever and we'll never be able to live where we want to live. And so we went and we looked at condos. Now we lived in a small apartment. It was about 700 square feet. Uh, and we went and looked at condos and what we, our price range, it wasn't even our price range. You'll find out. Uh, our price range was like 400 square feet. I'm like, man, those 300 extra square feet, those things, those square feet are glorious. 400 square feet. So <laughs> we got a realtor and we started going around to these different condos. We're checking out condo here. And we're like, oh, it has a nice view. But there is, a, the, the bathroom is next to the bed. Hmm. Okay. Um, and you would, we would just go to these different places like, wow, people spend that for this? Oh, okay. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And we just saw these like eye-popping numbers. And I think we just kind of decided, well, hey, this is just what you have to do if you're going to own a home. If you're going to get in, you have to get in now. I remember I went over to my mom's house that night, 
my mom and dad's, I'm sitting there, we're having dinner, and I was telling my mom, I was like, yeah, you know, we, we checked some condos out. I'm becoming a man. Your son's growing up. I'm buying a house. And uh, I'm telling her all about it, and my mom's so great. She's like, oh, wow, that sounds so interesting. And she's like, can you afford... And I, we told, I told her, like, how much one of these condos was going to be. It's, like, more than their home. And they're like, she's like, uh, can you afford that um, payment with all the student loan debt that you have? And I was like, uh, And all of a sudden, I was just like, I felt trapped. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's right, I do. I have a good amount of student loan debt, and actually my wife has student loan debt. And right when she said it, I, I felt like a boot was on my neck. And I was like, I want to go... The general in me wants to go enjoy what God has given me, provide a home for my family. It's a good thing. I really want to do that, but I can't. Why? Because I have debt. Another general in my life telling me where my money can go. I, I, I didn't feel like my future was bright at that point. I felt like it was full of somebody else telling my soldiers where to go. Anyways, that next night, I'm working out and I'm just thinking to myself, how are we going to do this? I'm kind of feeling hopeless. Like, we'll never be able to own a home. And I'm working out, and I remember my dad telling me when I was a kid about this guy named Dave Ramsey. I'm like, ah, he's probably some old guy. He only makes sense to boomers. That's probably his deal. I don't know. Maybe I'm not going to listen to this guy. I don't know. But it was like the Lord came in. He's like, listen to him. <laughs> I'm like, listen to him. Okay, so I, I go to my phone and I get on my podcast app. And I'm like, I wonder. You know, I was getting into podcasts. I'm like, I wonder if he has a podcast. Sure enough, Dave Ramsey has a significant podcast. It's pretty awesome. And I remember listening to this podcast. And on this podcast, on his radio, it's his radio show that's just a podcast version. On his radio show, he started saying things like this. He says, Proverbs 22.7 says this. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. And I'm like, that's me. I'm that guy. <laughs> and then he says something like this. He says, Romans 13, verse 8. It says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Oh, no one anything. And I was like, and get inspired. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to owe anything to anybody. I want to be free. <laughs> and I remember him saying this. He said, Dave's like, you need to get rid of your debt. I can't do his voice. I'll, I won't even try. You need to get rid of your debt with gazelle intensity. And I was like, um, what? <laughs> and he said, see, in Proverbs 6, it says this. If you have put up security for your neighbor, in other words, in, in ancient Hebrew culture, if you've co-signed on a loan, if you're on the hook for debt, if you've put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands and a pledge for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself. Go to the point of exhaustion. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. I was like, whoa. If you've signed a loan and you need to get out of it, be like a hunted gazelle. Do everything you can to escape. Pay no attention to how your feet feel as you're running through the woods. Pay no attention to your right or to your left. You need to just run. And so we did. We went crazy. 
like gazelles, we wanted our lives back, our future back. I wanted to dream with my wife again. I wanted to walk up and down streets and say, hey, maybe we could live in that house someday. What if, what if we did this with our finances? What if we gave this person th this or that? I wanted to dream again. We wanted to rule like we were created to rule. And so we literally ate beans and rice for a year. Like literally. Like we had many different types, different flavors, lots of sauces, many different sauces in the refrigerator, but we ate the cheapest food that we could find. We sold tons of stuff. We worked extra jobs. We learned this ancient art form of saying no. all so that we could just get free to get this boot off of our necks. And we did it. In one year, we paid off all of our debt. It was very difficult, and I never want to do it again, but <laughs> I'm glad we did it. And now we're free. Now we get to tell our soldiers that God entrusted us with where they should go. We, we got there, and, and we are now able to be fully submitted to the Lord like we were created to do, like we were created to be. So this is why we're doing Financial Peace University. I wanna ask you this, are you ruling in your finances or are they ruling you? Are you ready for financial freedom? The ability to walk in step with your creator, partnering with your creator, able to tell your soldiers where to go. To end, I think there's three things that the Lord wants to make, put on offer to us this evening. The first is this. I think there's an opportunity to resubmit your finances to God this evening. There's another opportunity to say, yes, even that, Lord, is yours. We're doing Financial Peace University to teach people how to get the boot off of their neck, to how to get out of debt, and how to be a general with their money, but it is far more important that you do what he tells you to do. Yeah. When you know what he's asked you to do with your money, then you're really free. When you know, when you have a word from the Lord, this is what we're to do in this season, and we're gonna do it. Then you're free. Secondly, I think there's an opportunity for generosity to increase in us. Uh, let's, let us not forget what our real debt is, the debt of sin. We are the people who Jesus paid our debt of sin with his body and his blood. So in all things, we must be generous. He set a standard for what generosity looks like. And who are we to not meet it? Who are we to not say, in the same way that you've loved us, to that degree, we will love others? And lastly, I think, this is, and this one's really important, guys, I think there is a guilt that is leaving our church and our family, and there's a freedom coming as we recognize that God wants us to enjoy what he's made. It's a big deal in the church. I think there's a lot of false enjoyment that's actually idolatry, but real enjoyment is just so important to honor the Lord with. See, we don't use our relationship with God to get stuff. That would be foolish and sad, totally corrupting our relationship with the Lord. But if I pivot from asking God for things in my life, because I think it's selfish, to going out and getting what I need without consulting him, the blessing that could have moved me to praise him now wars with my affections and becomes a recipe for idolatry. You didn't catch that. I'm gonna say it one more time. If I pivot from asking God for things in my life, because I think it's selfish, to going out and getting what I think I need without consulting him, the blessing that could have moved me to praise him now wars with my affections 
and it becomes a recipe for idolatry in my life. See, the things that I go out and I attain for myself, they speak to me about my ability. But the gifts that I receive from God speak to me about his ability. Do you see the difference? See, the material items in your life should prophesy to you about his provision. You should be able to to walk into your home, to walk into your dorm room, to sit in your car, to look at the things that God has given you and to have them become reminders, stones of reminder that tell you, oh, remember God did this. And if he did that, he'll provide for me today. They increase trust and relationship rather than war against it. See, I have things in my life that remind me of mistakes that I've made. They remind me of my obsession for material and and the disappointment of my life not getting infinitely better when I got that thing that I thought would make my life ultimate. And there are things in my life that sing of his goodness and of his provision. And I'll tell you what, I enjoy one of those types of things more than the other. I think he wants that for us this evening. Let's all stand together. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier.